0: You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and this week on the Crisis in the Church series, we're taking a break from our normal interviews for Christmas, but we wanted to do an episode recapping what we've talked about over the last three months. That way, if you've missed an episode, or a few, you can get up to speed as we continue with our series next week. We've condensed the past nine hours of episodes into about an hour, highlighting a few of the important points from each interview. So, we'll start with our first interview when we asked Father John McFarland whether or not there's a crisis in the Church. Well, there obviously is, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this entire series. But we asked him first what makes this crisis different than all the others that the Church has gone through in her history.
1: I would say the universality. That we are seeing a, a complete, almost complete disruption of the the Church's practice and the understanding of the Church's doctrine. There's never been anything like that before. And also, it, it's pervaded every, every level of the hierarchy. Uh, we find it in the um, Course Among the Lady, but uh, the priests, the, the episcopacy uh, in Rome, and, and even with the popes themselves, this uh, contributions to the crisis, we can mm. say. And,
0: uh, I mean, haven't the popes in the last 50 years seen this? Hasn't the Vatican—I mean, you'd think they would respond
1: in some way. Yes, and they have, the recent popes have, have pointed out uh, they haven't done much about it. At times they act as if there there is no crisis, but you do have some very telling admissions that they, they've given over the years, and, and not just one pope, but but most of them since since the council. Hmm. So Paul VI, for example, the church is in a disturbed period of self-criticism or what would better be called self-demolition. It's a it's a pretty strong statement that, that the church is destroying itself. Right. And and Paul this Pope Paul, Paul the sixth, he was
0: also the one who said that the smoke of Satan has entered the church. Is that is that a accurate quote of
1: his? Yes. Yes. Through some secret fissure, the smoke of Satan has entered the temple of God. It was believed that after the council a sunny day in the church's history would dawn, but instead there came a day of clouds, storms, and darkness. It's June 29th, 1972, so we're not even 10 years after the council at that point. Yeah, Benedict sixteenth.
0: I mean, arguably a little bit more traditional, a little bit more conservative than than the previous popes, um, and, and he spoke, I mean, from my own recollection, he spoke out about this crisis uh, probably a, a little bit more strongly, but again, didn't do a whole lot.
2: Right,
1: and um, in uh, only one month before his election in 2005, he... Compares the church to to a boat about to sink, a boat taking in water on every side. Uh, overall, the church is almost unrecognizable from what it was sixty years ago. It's been turned on its head entirely. We have we have chaos uh, in the hierarchy. We have scandals of all sorts, moral scandals, doctrinal scandals. We have the open contradiction of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, we have the you know the. Surveys we've talked about that indicate the the loss of faith, the, a lack of practice of the faith, a ever-growing lack of respect for the church's moral teaching. We have a, a fallen vocations, all these things unparalleled in the church's history. Wow. Um, we are in in the midst of a the crisis. There have been other crises in the past, undoubtedly, but nothing on this scale, nothing with this depth, nothing with this much damage. it's It's the greatest, that has ever afflicted the church. Yeah. And I think as wow. we'll see in the, in, you know, in the, the uh, future episodes, uh, all of this comes from the disastrous attempt to marry the teaching of the church um, with the thinking of the modern world at Vatican II.
0: We'll be speaking with Father McFarland here in just a few more episodes, but next we'll turn to Father Wiseman. He spent episode number two going over the remote background of liberalism and how this all got started with nominalism and Martin
2: Luther. In a certain sense, we can say the beginning was this uh, system of nominalism. And so it introduced a a real way of thinking about our thinking, about how we understand the world. And that's going to definitely play a part or, or, or start a ball rolling, we might say, that's going to be. That's going to pick up speed over the centuries. Each of these things that we're going to be looking at—nominalism, Luther's understanding, Kant's understanding of the world—they each, in some way, call into question uh, man's own understanding of what is outside of himself. So, okay. for example, if I if I see a tree and I say that's a tree, I could say Yes, so outside of myself and distinct from myself, there really does exist a thing, and it really has this kind of nature, and I call that a tree. Or else I could say, on the other hand, well, I don't know what is outside of me. I have really no idea what's outside of me. But whatever it is, I call my impression of it a tree. And if you want to call these two systems kind of objective truth and subjective truth you can. I'm gonna avoid the use of those terms for the sake of a bit more clarity. But generally speaking, all these positions that we're gonna examine, nominalism, Luther, eventually Kant, uh, they're all going to assert the latter statement in some way. That is, I don't really know what's outside me, but I give it a name. I give my impression of it a name.
0: And I, I personally, give it, Father give it talked in about the subjectivism that will invade somewhere. nearly every liberal and modern thought up till today.
2: Immediately, we, with the benefit of you know hindsight, we can see some some seeds that are planted here, uh, seeds of what we might call a subjectivism, or at least a, a break of our mind from reality, from what we would say is truth. So, truth is no longer going to be a question of again my mind receiving something from outside. So seeing and grasping a a nature that's common among many individuals, rather it's going to be a question of my mind imposing something on, on the outside, in this case, just a name, right? But I say, okay, I call you dog and that dog because, well, you kind of look similar, but in terms of whether you actually are, I don't know.
0: Next, Martin Luther, and how this nominalism influenced his thought, and therefore Protestant thought, from then on
2: every which way he turned, he seemed to be committing evil. And so since he can't escape it, he tries to find a system of thinking that will at least soothe him, release some of the tension. And if we could put his reasoning into words, this is perhaps an oversimplification, but we could say something like this, you know, Luther's thinking, well, if something is evil in me, and I can't overcome it by myself, that must mean that I am evil myself, my, by nature. It's, I can't help it. I'm just evil. And if this is so, then everything in me is everything, everybody like me as well, uh, must be intrinsically evil. And accordingly, the, the only thing that I can do is to accept myself as I am, as somebody who is incapable of doing any good, and it's only capable of committing evil. And so okay. how, how is man saved, according to Luther? Well, there's kind of a twofold movement, if you want. First, man has to recognize his own radical inability to do anything good, that he can only produce evil. So in some sense, man has to despair about himself. We could say it that way. But secondly, and this is the famous statement Man must believe and have confidence that the blood of Christ will save us, will save him, uh, despite the fact that we are and we remain essentially evil. And there's something that there's a statement of Luther that I don't know how many people know it. I, I think it's fairly well known, but it's really a horrific statement, but it sums up these two points very well. And that is this statement, you know, sin boldly, but believe still more boldly. And this is something that Luther said, go out and sin and sin boldly. Do all the evil you can imagine. Just make sure that you believe even more boldly than that, and then you will be saved. So it's, it's a horrific statement because it really right. says, you know, you have a license to sin. And as long right. as you believe, as long as you have confidence in Christ, well, it's not going to matter. And now we're very far, obviously, from the Catholic position. Luther's faith is not an act of reason, which we would say as Catholics would say, my faith is my belief. I I believe the truths, and I know the truths by my mind. But Luther says, no, no, it's not that. It's rather an act of your will, or if we're going to call a spade a spade, really an act of your feelings. Uh, I have Mm -hmm. to feel that I'm saved by Christ's blood, no matter what I do and this is the most important thing, religion then becomes something entirely interior, not exterior at all. I've really now broken uh, the connection between reality on the one hand and, and, and religion. Religion is something that gets trapped inside and stays inside me. That's the only thing I can know about it.
0: In episode three, Father Wiseman continued with the background of liberalism by looking at the philosophy of Immanuel Kant.
2: He began by talking about how faith and reason,
0: according to Kant, cannot
2: coexist. That pure reason cannot deduce the, the existence of God or the immortality of the soul by itself. But human reason can see that it is a question because it can argue on both sides. Right. So if it is a question, but reason can't solve it, something else has to solve it. What's that going to be? Faith. Uh-huh. So now we have... A break a definitive break which is luther was saying that remember luther luther said reason is bad right but kant systematizes it now and says reason sees that this is a question can't decide the question so it has to be faith and for kant then he says he's emptying out reason to make room for faith and so in that sense he he kind of is saying i'm doing religion a re- a big service here i'm showing you that Nobody can disprove the existence of God, so you're free to believe in the existence of God. But precisely that that introduces this, this break between faith and reason. We're always going to say faith and reason agree. They right. have to be uh, in harmony. But for Kant, he says, no, in order to protect faith, we have to show that reason can't touch it. Okay, it can't have anything to do with it.
0: Kant would develop a system of morality that is not based on consequences, such as displeasing God. So
2: he says you you have to ignore consequences, you have to ignore the goal. And if that's the case, then the highest morality you can do is to follow your duty, even if, or we might say, especially if, you don't like it. (laughs) Because if you like it, then you might be doing it because of a consequence that comes about, and you're founding morality on something that is not solid, according to Kant. Or again, if you're looking at a goal that you can achieve, you're not founding morality on something that's solid. So the only solid foundation for morality, the highest morality that there can be, do your duty even if, and especially if, you dislike it.
0: And then Father talked more about how Kant would further say that morality is noble if we are unhappy about doing it, that we should not seek joy or happiness in any of our responsibilities.
2: that's crazy, right? I mean, we can't live that way. Right. Uh, maybe if you're Kant and, and you take a walk at 5 p.m. every day because <laughs> it's your duty, you can try. But most right. people, they, they have to find something that's pleasant. And, and that's, it's actually human to find that. Um, and that, that's for Aristotle, that's really the case. And we would say, you brought up Catholicism. We would say the high point is not just doing your duty. It's, it's being happy. God wants you to be happy doing the right thing. And doing the right thing is the best way to be happy.
0: This consequence of Kant's philosophy is what Father calls complete moralism.
2: Morality is no longer based upon a truth that I can know and that is objective, to use that term, or outside of myself. Now, actions are no longer good because they conform themselves to some kind of uh, truth that is outside me. Rather, actions are good simply because they follow the law. And the law has no reason of being outside of itself. The law exists for its own sake, we might say. That's pure reason, is is coming up with seeing the law, let's say. So law and law alone make goodness and truth and morally good actions. And anytime you want to ask why you follow the law, you're destroying morality. Never ask why. But if we want to, just to to wrap this up, uh, then... We see that in both these points of Kant's system, we see precisely that a systematization of Luther's thought. So uh, we ma- we made the connections in both points with Luther, but this is really what's going on here. It's it's internally consistent with itself, which you couldn't really say about Luther, um, but it's entirely disconnected from common sense. And as we saw, it's it's starting from a. From a point that's going to lead to a real duality and fragmentation in man and and once again going back to that so connecting with modernism um for the modernist that's precisely what's going on You're man as believer and man as scientist two different things man as a moral being and man as living his day-to-day life, two different things. Uh Every time with modernism, you have this breaking apart of man instead of an integration. And so I really think uh, Kant's ideas lead us more or less directly to that. And, And that's why we've taken the time to go into this.
0: In our fourth episode, we spoke with Father Ruder as he kicked off our study of liberalism. At the beginning of episode four, we studied the goals of liberals, and then worked our way back through the history of liberal thought.
3: So the first step in the liberal agenda is to separate the church from the state, to banish Christ the King from the constitutions. Yes, The second was to suppress the mass by whatever Mm. means possible. And so, of course, we see this in the communist revolutions or the different persecutions. The mass is always persecuted or suppressed. The third goal is really to, to separate the souls from the source of grace, which is very closely linked to the second, because the mass is the source of grace. So really to make souls secular. To alienate them from the sacraments. To
0: alienate them from the laws of God. Father Ruder then pointed out that Archbishop Lefebvre pinpointed the cause of the crisis as liberalism.
3: So he wrote in his his book, They Have Uncrowned Him, which is certainly an excellent reference and a very important book today. He wrote that we have to go back to history in order to discover the primary cause of the evils today. So look at history. What's the primary cause? And then he tells us the primary cause is that liberalism, which was, which was condemned by the popes for two centuries. So the archbishop identified liberalism as the cause of the current crisis in the church.
0: We'll then dive a little bit deeper into the relationship between naturalism and liberalism.
3: It's an important link to make between naturalism and liberalism. And in fact, again, we always look to the Pope's the Magisterium for Light and from Pope Pius the Sixth all the way through Benedict the Fifteenth, they speak not only of liberalism, but they do speak of the errors between which the link between liberalism and Protestantism, and that Protestantism is founded in naturalism. So we can say naturalism is more fundamental even than liberalism. Mm -hmm. And it's really the grandfather of liberalism in many ways, naturalism.
0: Then we'll see how this naturalism and Luther led to liberalism.
3: In fact, it's it's paradoxical because we have the Renaissance Mm -hmm. which gloried in the beauty of man, how beautiful the proportions of, of man thanks to God's creation, all the harmony. But Luther, on the other hand, is a naturalist in a different and more insidious way. For him, rather than looking at the beauty of nature, for him, nature is intrinsically corrupted and can't be healed. So, again, it's this naturalism insofar as we know as Catholics that grace builds on nature. Grace heals nature. For Luther, grace was something purely extrinsic. Nature was so evil it could not be healed. Therefore, man can can do nothing but wallow in his natural misery which really separates man from God. If the Renaissance separated man from God in the sense that he didn't see his need for redemption, Luther is the opposite. We're so miserable that we can't be redeemed anyway. But now with the Enlightenment, the philosophy of the Enlightenment takes these nominalist notions. For example, for Luther, redemption was purely external. Grace was external. We couldn't even know, really grasp the essence of what it was. And now you have in the Enlightenment where all truth becomes subjective and we, we can't even access the truth. So everybody makes their own truth according mm. to, to their, own, their own desires. And of course, Immanuel Kant and, and Descartes are all big figures in this movement of, of man unable to get out of himself.
0: For our fifth episode, we looked at liberalism by learning more about liberty. Specifically, through the encyclical of Leo the Thirteenth, called *Libertas*. Church defends that we have free will. Just to kind of recap a little bit, the Church defends we we have free will. It says, "Hey, it's it's dangerous if you go against, if you abuse this free will." Uh, but then it also promotes the natural law. Is that right? Exactly.
3: So she's an adamant defender of free will. She warns us. She sounds, you know, she sounds the alarm that you're wounded. Be very careful don't follow your lower passions, and then to keep us from just following our lower passions or following our intellect into error, then she defends the natural law, she brings us the divine law, she brings us church law, and she gives us, she coerces us by certain punishments just to make sure, hey, this is the way to happiness. So liberty is for the sake of an end, and the church wants us to reach our end and therefore she gives us these road signs of the natural, the divine, the ecclesiastical law to help us reach our end. And the more we are seeking our end, the more free we are, the more happy we are.
4: So So for for the liberal,
3: the fundamental principle by which all things are judged or organized are his freedom from constraint, physical or moral. Nobody's gonna tell me what to do, what to wear, where to go. You know, I might relinquish some of my rights then I'll do it but I'm not accepting that God or the church or the state are telling me I'm accepting to do it because I relinquish my rights for the sake of utility to, for the sake to live in peace with my common mankind
0: okay so then this, this kind of thinking this, this fundamental principle of just straight up freedom mm-hmm. that, that's going to flow directly into liberal philosophy liberal ideas about religion liberal politics etc. Mm-hmm.
3: Exactly. So for for example the, the liberal philosopher the human mind is the measure of all things. Mm. So the human mind is not measured by God's mind and therefore the human mind does not have to seek to conform itself to God's mind through the natural order and the natural law but the human mind is the measure of all things. I will choose what is true for me which of course as we know, Immanuel Kant is largely responsible for that. I'll choose what's true for me, you choose what's true for you. Mm-hmm. And so in philosophy, you can have as many philosophies as people because we, are, we can all choose what's true for us. And ultimately liberalism is that, is man's liberated from the order of God, he creates his own order. If I'm the creator of my own order, I'm God. And so anybody who tries to ratchet that back does "No, you can't just murder babies you know, up through nine months. Well, you're restricting my liberty. Who mm-hmm. are you to say that I don't have this power over, you know, my body? But part of the problem also though, of course, as we mentioned in the first series is, most conservatives today, they don't promote these laws based off the natural law or the divine law. They're based it purely off positive law. Right. So they're not rooting it in, you know, the divine law. Thou shalt not kill. This is a person. Um, even in the abortion you know, industry and fighting against it, even the pro-lifers will say, well, that, that child has the right to live. Okay, well, it's true. But the fundamental problem is God has the right over life and death. And nobody right. has the right to take that life because God alone is the master of life and death. So the conservatives constantly try to rein in the liberals, but using purely positive law. The liberals are enraged against the law of God. The consequence is what we see, which is
0: chaos. Yeah, if if you play the liberal game, you'll lose every time. It's exactly. it's like the it, thing
3: is service are playing a liberal game.
0: We spoke with Father Ruder again for our sixth episode titled "Liberal Catholics Don't Exist," which showed that there is a contradiction between Catholic thought and liberal thought.
3: He tells us that really is absolute incoherence to be a, a liberal Catholic, because to be a liberal is to liberate yourself from a certain order established by God and to be a Catholic is essentially an act of submission to an order established by God. And so I think we get a quote already that the liberalism of a liberal Catholic escapes all classification and has only one sole distinctive and characteristic note that of perfect and absolute incoherence. Once you grasp the concept liberal and the concept Catholic, you realize the two cannot go together and and make any sense.
2: So,
0: okay. So how did we get to this point then where we have these two theories that are, that people are trying to mesh together or join together?
3: Um, To a great extent, it comes from a lack of understanding of what it means to be Catholic. In fact, you know, the whole series is called the crisis in the church and to a great extent we're here because what it means to be Catholic, our Catholic identity has been lost. And we've taken on an identity, that of liberalism, which in fact can't be the identity of a true Catholic. So I think to a great extent, liberal Catholicism thrives because Catholicism is not understood.
0: Father Ruder walked us through some history, where he explained how in the early 20th century there was a movement in France called Action Francaise, which tried to restore Christ the King. This movement was, surprisingly, condemned by Pius XI.
3: Yes, not because of their Catholic activity, but because of different aspects of the political movement. So he wasn't condemning the notion of bringing back Christ the King by any means. But there were many different elements to Action Francaise which he was not so comfortable with. But that was really the last big movement to undo the French Revolution. And I would say when that failed, some even say the reason Jacques Mertin went so far left in his political philosophy was when Action Française was condemned, he thought, well, the old order is certainly over. We're not going back to this Christian union, church and state. What is the new Christianity that we have to form? And of course, personalism and great friend of Paul VI. And so we do see that as the church kept losing influence and losing battles, people started thinking, OK, what is the what is the way forward? What is the new normal? How do we have peace in society? How does the church fit into the modern world? rather than how do we take the world and uplift it by the principles the church teaches. I think that's the key. The key problem is we're trying to make the church fit into the modern world and the church lift up the modern world. Christ said, I come to reconcile things to myself. Christ didn't come to reconcile himself to the world. And that's really the spirit of the liberal Catholic is that reconciling the church and the doctrines of the church
0: to the modern world. Father then explained how this liberalism first entered into the church, and how it was initially condemned.
3: Yeah, there was a big name which is really, we see as the father of liberal Catholicism as such. He was a priest, as Luther was a priest, so we see that priests can do much good and much evil as well. Um, Felicite de Lamine, he was a French priest ordained in 1817. He founded a newspaper, which had a lot of influence at the time. And he was really advocating for the democratic government so this new post-revolutionary world he was advocating for the separation of church and state for a free church in a free state and freedom of conscience we're not going to impose on the conscience of people not force. of course we don't force conversions but not even try to proselytize as we used to and freedom of press which we know as we see today manifestly freedom of press is an illusion, there's there's no such thing, but he was pushing even for this, this freedom of press. And it's because he bought into that notion that humanity is in this constant progress, that this new notion of liberty is the new normal we have to accept and we have to embrace, and that all religions have equal rights, and the church doesn't have any special privileges or prerogatives from her divine rights, but she belongs to the same common rights as every other religion. And he had this illusion that if we do that, the church will do well. Put wow. truth and falsehood on the same level, and the church will do well.
0: Then we'll see how these ideas were brought into the church wholeheartedly in the later 20th century.
3: Well, Vatican II was the moment where they were, again, they were these baptized by the church. The Vatican II saw itself as this new springtime. It really saw itself as the counter-syllabus. So the papacy of Pius IX was really setting up a wall to hold out the liberal influence and vatican II's was to open the windows and let all the influence in and cardinal ratzinger who was a young expert of the council at the time then became pope he said in the principles of catholic theology that the text of gaudium espes plays the role of a counter syllabus in the measure in which it it represents a tentative for an official reconciliation of the church with the world of the French Revolution, and wow. so so the syllabus was meant to hold back liberalism. And Cardinal Ratzinger then he saw the Vatican II as the counter syllabus, lessing in liberalism, and the Archbishop, you know, he had this discussion with the then Cardinal, and for him that's what distinguished his work and the work of Cardinal Ratzinger and then Pope Benedict was the church was working for to de-Christianize society, to, un, to unthrone our Lord Jesus Christ, to uncrown our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Archbishop is working, following the Magisterium, to keep our Lord Jesus Christ king, king of
0: civil society king of our souls. In our seventh episode, we welcome Father Jonathan Loop, who gave us some background of a heresy based on liberalism, but which gained ground as soon as the American Catholic Church grew in numbers, called Americanism. He explained how the writings of the English philosopher John Locke greatly influenced the Founding Fathers, and therefore all Americans,
5: including the American clergy, later on. That plays out in a series of writings that he does um, that will become the, the, you might say, the intellectual food of a lot of um, American uh, colonists, such as the First and Second Treatises, which really lay out the foundations of politics apart from Revelation. Um, as well as a letter concerning toleration, which has a huge impact in shaping the understanding of how church and state should be related. Um, And we'll, I think, come back to that a little bit more in detail. And then also his reasonness of Christianity, which is an effort to uh, really downplay more than anything else the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he really wants to diminish that idea precisely so as to... um, Mitigate again that that claim of men to to guide politics and revelation. Ultimately, we would say under the banner of Christ the King.
0: Father Loop explained how Leo the Thirteenth admired the young United States, but also recognized the error of Americanism.
5: So, what Leo the Thirteenth says um, about Americanism, that um, that false set of ideas, is that it's based on one main principle, which is that. In order to attract, um, let's say more easily, those who differ from her, from the church, the church should shape her teachings more in accord with the spirit of the age and relax some of her ancient severity and make some new, I apologize, make some concessions to new opinions in other words, he's, he's noting that there is a, a desire to draw people to the church, but in such a way as to, in one manner or another, modify the teachings of the church, which are seen as obstacles to their conversion, so as to make it more accessible to them.
0: Episode eight continued on this theme of Americanism and looked more specifically at the actions of the American clergy during this time of great growth and seeming fervor. Father points out the emphasis on active virtues instead
5: of passive, more spiritual virtues. So the pope notes that um, there's this unhealthy emphasis on natural virtue as at the expense of supernatural virtue, and as What he says is in fact it's not just natural virtue as such, but certain natural virtues, those which are, as he puts it, more active than passive. You know, for example, I think one that the average American would be very familiar with, and in fact typically pride himself on, would be we could say industriousness. You know, I I work, you know, you think about um Guys, young guys, bragging about how many hours a week they work. You know, when I was in college, I used to do that all the time. Yeah, you know, certainly not necessarily as such a bad thing. But uh, what the, the Pope, the Leo was saying is that there's this really unhealthy, exaggerated emphasis on these kinds of uh, virtues, which depreciate and degrade the sense of, you know, spiritual the, the, sense of the spiritual life, truly the real sense, the spiritual life. A lot of Catholics here in the United States viewed the best way to, to practice a faith their faith simply in helping works. And it's true, what you do see, in fact, is this huge explosion of, uh, let's say, the building of churches, the building of hospitals, the building of schools, even building of uh, convents and religious life. Well, a lot of which were more focused, let's say, on the act of the
0: And contrary to what was happening in Europe, where the church was being persecuted by laïcité and other restrictions, the Catholic Church in the United States was growing and even being protected by the courts, something shocking for the European Catholics. But this protection still was based on the liberal concept of separation of church and state, and therefore in error.
5: In America, you have a situation where the state will not publicly worship God. The people somehow claim that they have no, no debt to God, and that they are free, whether they choose or not, to give him worship. Um, the United States is very deeply enmeshed in that idea of liberalism that says that we can separate the state from God. Pius IX, in his syllabus of errors, you know, condemns the proposition that, you know, somehow, if you have religious uh, civil liberty, that is not going to lead to indifferentism. And we're all fundamentally formed by that. We all drive by, you know, the average Lutheran church, the average Mormon church. We're like, oh, okay. That's yeah, normal that they're there. There's an attempt to base the laws merely on the natural law. And again, it's uh, natural, that Leo 13th talks about. it's... Is not the extreme point, and, and in fact, this is one thing that really separates America from, let's say, um, later European political orders, Is that they wanted to look to nature; they wanted to look to an order that existed in the, in the way the human will and human mind and model themselves off that. But it was, that's all that they wanted to do. They didn't want to, let's say, make. The the reviewer law of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation of the laws of the state.
0: In episode nine, we took a little bit of a sidestep with Father David Sherry, the District Superior of Canada, where we answered a specific listener question, and that is how the crisis in the church and our crises in society are connected. I would definitely suggest that you listen to this episode in full. It's great. And so we won't give any snippets of it here, and instead move along directly to episode 10 with Father Franks, where we begin to look at modernism after having finished our study of liberalism.
4: A modernist has lost the faith. Okay. They've lost the faith in an objective supernatural revelation. But... Rather than just becoming an atheist, um, generally speaking, the modernist is one who wants to keep the positive values that he has found in Christianity and give them a new sense.
0: Modernists will try to explain the Bible in several different ways, and Father Franks walks us through each one. The first explanation is that our Lord was a fraud. So
4: where did the Bible come from? Where did the New Testament come from? Where did those stories come from? What did they mean? They didn't come from nowhere. So let's... And the Protestants set about explaining them. A kind of rationalist um, tradition of biblical scholarship. You know, some claimed he, he was just a fraud. So he never intended to be a religious teacher, he didn't do miracles and prophecies, he was just a, a political agitator.
0: The next would be a rationalist explanation.
4: And then other Protestants are going to come along and say, look, we agree with you that there were no historical supernatural happenings, but this is obviously absurd. You're positing basically the the widest, largest cultural movement of all time, Um historic Christianity, that it just arised, ar- arose from fraud and lies and naivety. And there's a that's a, a complete disproportion between cause and effect. Something must have happened and something more substantial than what you're saying, because you can't get that many people to swallow that kind of thing.
0: The third modernist explanation of scripture is proposed by Strauss, who was influenced by Hegel.
4: And he claimed that the Gospels are... A collection of myths that were superimposed on the historical person of Jesus, um, based upon the further the fervor and the the religious um, sympathies and cultural prejudices of the early Christians.
0: Then we looked at the fourth explanation, which we called the Tubingen School, after the Tubingen School of philosophy, which melded Protestant and Catholic
4: thought. So the the Tubingen school of ex- biblical exegesis it gives its name the university gives its name to an, to its own school and that was the the based on the idea that um christianity was originally two sects that were really opposed but ended up synthesizing that's um the the petrine sect which is a kind of jewish christian sect that, that focuses on messiahship and the observance of the mosaic law and then there's the pauline sect which is more kind of hellenistic uh, greek tending um emphasizing the universality of salvation by faith not so much the mosaic law and so on and these two things are kind of opposed and fighting out in early christianity but in the second century under the pressure from gnosticism they kind of Join forces, together we're stronger, and, that, and that's how you get Christianity. Um, okay, more importantly, because this is going to play into our Catholics, um, what we call the liberal school, and one of the big proponents of that is going to be Renan. Renan and, and von Harnack as well. So their, their view is um, look, the Gospels are largely historical. So it's a kind of Because at one point, somebody was just like, look, if that's the way it is, Jesus is just a myth. Forget it. And then there's a sort of counter, conservative counterattack. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's lock it down. (laughs) You've gone too far. And that's where this liberal school goes. The Gospels, they are going to say basically historical, except when they describe the miraculous.
0: Father then gave us some information about two prominent Catholic modernist scholars the first being Alfred Loisy.
4: Particularly the founding of the church then becomes problematic for Loisy. So, Jesus was not a miracle-working, supernatural messenger. He was a misguided and ultimately wrong preacher of the end of the world. So, he preaches the kingdom, and this is the famous quote from Loisy. Christ preached the kingdom, and it was the church that came. But he's going to say, okay, Christ didn't found the Catholic Church. But that's not a problem. Listen. She came, enlarging the form of the gospel, which it was impossible to preserve as it was as soon as the Passion closed the ministry of Jesus. But he gives a justification for the church coming out of the kingdom. There is no institution on the earth or in history whose status and value may not be questioned if the principle is established that nothing may exist except in its original form. Things have to move and change. Now we know we've had Darwin, we've had Hegel. We know. To live is to change, and if you don't change, you die. Everybody knows that. So the Catholic Church was not founded directly by Jesus Christ. He just announced the kingdom, and the Church developed out of the early Christian consciousness, and that's not a problem. Because... Mm. That's how things happen if you actually submit to the law of evolution, which governs all human behavior.
0: The next modernist Catholic of prominence was George Tyrrell, an Anglican convert. This is a
4: quote again from Tyrrell. Religion is the spontaneous result of the demands of the human spirit, fully satisfied with the emotive experience of God in us. We have the feeling first, and then we express it. God is not a distant being far from man. We need to praise the virtues of the various theisms, pantheism and polytheism. For polytheism is a better expression of the divine than anthropomorphic deism, right? God cannot be squeezed into one concept. So having a kind of plurality of images or words that express an infinite reality is actually richer and better than just kind of having one God and he's a man with a white beard.
0: In our conclusion on Modernist Philosophy, Father Franks and I discussed how it all ties back to this same rationalism that we discussed with Father Wiseman. Not for the sake of twisting it, but because they they don't have that grasp on, on reality. That's what it all comes down to.
4: The problem is, this, is the problem reality. is once you get into their system, it's very hard to think your way out of it. Yeah, because once you accept one of the principles, the rest of it follows more or less inest- naturally, and you're like, "Well, where it all seems to fit together, fine." Right. Small error in the principles and a big one in the conclusions. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Um, and it's such a shame. It's such a shame for these um, for these men that they didn't love scholastic philosophy. I wonder, I mean, I don't know exactly what their teachers were like, but scholastic philosophy is marvellous. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing, and it clarifies everything, and it it gives such light and um, clarity and uh, and peace and order, and a good teacher of of scholastic philosophy is is a wonderful and a marvellous thing and highly to be prized, and it's, it seems as if they didn't have that.
0: Next, in our 11th episode, we talked with Father Paul Robinson about modernism, using the encyclical of Paschendi as a framework. We started first by talking about the distinction between a liberal and a modernist.
6: Liberalism is an error about the will. It makes the, the human will supreme um, and that's how you get to the situation where whatever anybody wants, they have a right to do, effectively. That's uh, definitely characteristic of our, of our society today. Modernism is is more based on
0: what's called rationalism. Next, we got into Pope St. Pius X's encyclical, Pashendi.
6: So that's what Pius X says in his famous encyclical on modernism, Pashendi. And he says, the foundational um, assumption of modernism is that agnosticism... About the religious aspects of things that that we do not we cannot know um, that what is beyond human reason is ever true we can never reach that so we have we as Catholics we have a very different perspective we can say um, I can be certain about the existence of God um, I can be certain or at least morally certain that Jesus Christ is God um, that He rose from the dead um, that the doctrines of the Catholic Church are true. And I can receive this information from the outside in, by sources other than sense knowledge. Um, I can, okay. I can receive it, for instance, from the testimony of someone who's trustworthy uh, and that, that will count. Um, so, but, but they say that, that doesn't work. So effectively everything from the outside, um, all information from the outside about religion is inconclusive. And so what you have to do then, if you can't go to the outside, what you have to do is turn to the inside. Uh, uh, that, that's that's the what, what many people would understand modernism as being, where where you look within your side inside yourself, and you have this need for the divine, and you might come into contact with something really stunning. You're looking at a sunset. Or you're looking at the beauty of a rose, and you you have this feeling in you that that what you're looking at um, is somehow connecting you with something higher, and then and then you search your feelings when you're moved by seeing the rose or the sunset, and you think maybe there's a God, maybe God is revealing Himself within. My my lower intestines or something, you know. Um,
0: <laughs> God's move. God, I think I think it's God who's moving me. But there's there's definitely in my mind a similarity between uh, in in uh, liberalism this idea of I'm going to uh, posit my own belief about something onto something else, and then here with modernism, what you just uh, explained to us, Father, this this vital imminence of well, I have this feeling, and so I'm going to externalize some sense of a deity uh, because it, it, but it, but in both places both in liberalism with um, concepts and thoughts and knowledge and ideas and with uh, modernism with uh, an idea of, of the divine it's both starting inside man you're not looking at the external and 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 saying this is true or this is not true it's starting from within and, and it's backwards
6: it is it is so it de Religion, religion is no longer an objective thing. It's a purely subjective thing. So by subjective thing, I mean it relies purely on the experience of the individual. It doesn't rely upon some external authority which everybody can refer to. You know, when you have the church, it's out there, and the catechism is out there. Then everybody can look at the church and listen to the church and obey the church. Um, It's something objective. There's an object for them to obey. Um, But when it becomes subjective, it's all about your personal feelings. And I mean, I I, I have my personal feelings. I might try to express them to someone else, but they haven't experienced it. Um, And if if someone comes to me with their personal feelings and and says, I had this experience of of God, um, you know, what can I say? I'm not going to say, well, no, you didn't. Uh, I mean, and, and they would say to me, well, you didn't experience it. How do you know? Um, and believe it or not, this is this is how we come to something like Assisi and, and the
0: Pacamala. Father next conceded that Pascendi can be difficult to read, but he explains Pope St. Pius X's methods here.
6: He really tries to spell out in detail the entire process for a person coming to religion through vital eminence. Um, and he, he goes into great detail and he's presenting the modernist beliefs in, with, with great accuracy. That's why the modernists would say, if you want to know modernism, read Pashendi of Pope St. Pius X. <laughs> didn't call him right. Saint, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he says, here's how it works. Um, you have this feeling. Uh, you, 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 we can take the example of this typically used of, of our Lord. Um, why did the apostles have faith? in our Lord? Well, um, they they would say, the modernists would say, that our Lord had the keenest sense of the, the divine, of, of any human being. Um, that need for the divine, and the consciousness of the divine was working more strongly in him. And when people would come into contact with, with our Lord, they would have a religious experience, just by being in his presence. And, and what they would do is they transfigure and disfigure the the sensations that they're receiving. Um, When they come into contact with that sunset, with the rose, or or Jesus Christ, that those things are stirring up within them, and and what they do is, they take what they're seeing, and they elevate it above its natural condition. They sort of divinize the the thing, um, and they, they, they transfigure it, and then they disfigure it by attributing to it Divine characteristics, and that's how they make their act of faith. Um, they they believe that this thing outside of them is divine because of the feelings that are within them, and uh, that they even apply this to our Lord. And it's it's rather scandalous. Uh, the, Pope Pius X is scandalized at what he's having to relate about their their conception of Jesus Christ. Um, they distinguish a Jesus Christ of history and a Jesus Christ of faith
0: father then pointed out how the liberal notion that the apostles were simply starry-eyed dupes who were easily fooled is simply preposterous.
6: Why the apostles and the first Christians, this conception that, that they were just projecting on Christ all these divine attributes that were so extreme, him walking on water, him changing water to wine, him rising from the dead, um, and, and it's just effectively, they're not lying. In in their mind, they're not lying. It's just they're so worked up with their religious feelings. They can't help but believe it. Um, And for me, I find that very hard to believe. Um, The the Gospels are so sober. They're they're, they're so plain in their prose. They're so direct in their prose. It's it's clear that there's not an attempt to exaggerate anything. It's very laconic. It's very just matter-of-fact. Um, so it's not the writing of someone who's on some sort of religious drug trip, but they're just so taken out of themselves.
0: And so to tie it back to where we started with Pakamama and with uh, the Assisi uh, gatherings, uh, this is basically, again, a, a manifestation of modernism in action.
6: Definitely, definitely. So if God is, if every human being has this need for the divine, if that need for the divine is triggered um, when you come into contact with something sublime, and if, if that is the main thing, then then God must be manifesting Himself um, all over the place. And then dogma is something that comes later. Dogma is just you expressing your feelings. Um, so we say, how could John Paul Pope, John Paul II, kiss the Koran? Um, well, if if this is if the Quran is just an expression of the religious feelings
0: of the Muslims, um, then. It should be respected to a certain degree. Right. Um, we can't say it's false because we don't know their interior feelings about religion.
6: Yes, yes. And so if they're expressing their re- religious feelings in this way, who am I to judge? Um, and on the, on the contrary, I should respect these various manifestations. So what we do is is we go around and we say, look, I as a Catholic, I have these religious feelings, and I'm going to bear witness to them and tell them tell you how they move me. And you tell me about your religious. I will respect your religious feelings. You will respect my religious feelings. And for for John Paul II, this is the way we would build a civilization of love. Um, we would go around the world. We we would get religious people together. We would share our feelings. We would respect one another. And then you would have something of a paradise on earth, and that that everybody would be would be very happy together. We would
0: get along and, and so on. Well, thank you for watching and listening to this quick. Sort of recap episode of the last 11 episodes of the Crisis in the Church series. We'll be back with a new episode next week, where Father Robinson will continue on with the study of modernism, this time Catholic modernists, and why they have such a disdain for tradition. In the coming weeks, we'll be speaking with Father McFarland on the topic of social modernism, Father Bormo on the topic of existentialism, and then we'll start to get into the Second Vatican Council itself, starting with the preparatory period through to its conclusion, and then a study of the Novus Ordo Mass. And in the coming months, we'll also touch on ecclesiology, collegiality, ecumenism, sedivacontism, infallibility, and much more. So, on behalf of all the priests, sisters, brothers, employees, and volunteers at the U.S. District Office, we wish you a very Merry Christmas.